Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Today, the state of the presidential race, of the GOP, and of the Democratic Party. We have got Governor Chris Christie and James Carville on lessons from the 2020 election and predicted outcomes. That's now. Hey, everyone. I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. Today, we've got two of the smartest guys in politics joining us with predictions on how this presidential contest is going to wind up. And what really happened on Election Day with those down-ballot races? What does it say about the future of the Democratic Party? Going to get to that in one second. But first, have you ever Googled yourself, your neighbors? The majority of Americans admit to keeping an eye on their online reputation. But Google and Facebook are at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to finding public records. There's an innovative new website called Truthfinder, and it's now revealing the full scoop on millions of Americans. Truthfinder can search through hundreds of millions of public records in a matter of minutes. Truthfinder members can begin searching in seconds for sensitive data like criminal, traffic, and arrest records. Before you bring someone new into your life and around the people you care so deeply for, consider trying Truthfinder. What you find may astound you. This might be the most important web search that you ever do. Go to truthfinder.com slash Kelly right away to start searching. Again, that's truthfinder.com slash Kelly. And now, Governor Chris Christie, formerly governor of the state of New Jersey. Governor Chris Christie, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure, Megan. Great to be with you. All right. So on the show, we want to give it to the listeners straight. What is Trump doing? Does he have a realistic chance of prevailing on an overall effort to reverse this vote? No, Megan, I don't. I always approach this as a former prosecutor as opposed to a former governor because I want to deal with the facts. And that's what we got to do exclusively when we were in prosecuting. I said this on the Wednesday morning after the election, um, after the president's first speech at about 2.30 in the morning. You can't stand up there and say there's been fraud, the election's being stolen, and I would have won easily but for it unless you produce evidence. And we're now sitting here, you know, 16 days after the election, and I still haven't seen any evidence. Now, are there irregularities in elections? There are always irregularities in elections. Um, The question is, were there irregularities or intentional acts that um, would have changed the course of the result? I haven't seen that. 
Um, and I think it's, you know, getting very, very late to present something like that. So, you know, the strategy here uh, from the president's perspective, I couldn't explain it to you because in the end, if he was concerned about this beforehand, which he said he was, he should have had a much better legal strategy in place in the weeks before the election to be able to detect anything that was going sideways. He didn't. And whenever you try to piece this kind of stuff together afterwards, you know, you're not going to succeed. And so, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, if he doesn't have any evidence, which it doesn't appear he does, um, that would change the results in at least three states, then it's time to move on. So I, like you, uh, have tried to look at the evidence. And one thing we both know from having been in courtrooms is the judge, the courts in these cases are going to see a lot more than you and I are going to see over here. They get to read all the briefs, get to, <laughs> they have to read all the briefs, see all the evidence, the affidavits that have been presented. And I will trust what the courts tell us in terms of outcome. But just looking at the overall landscape, he's losing most of these challenges. In, in Pennsylvania, he filed eight lawsuits. Only three are still pending. The strongest one is the one that went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, get back to us if this remains an issue, which is, uh, was the state Supreme Court allowed to uh, postpone the deadline for submitting your vote by allowing you to just postmark your vote as of Election Day? That's the strongest. But we don't even know if those if that category of votes, which is sitting in a separate pile, has been included in Biden's 81,000 vote perceived victory right now. So, you know, Biden may be able to win Pennsylvania without any of those votes because, you know, they may not even be in the pile at this point and there aren't enough to to swing it the other way. And then in Michigan, he filed two lawsuits. Only one is left standing. Um, and that's basically just about challengers not being allowed to observe the voting process. The filings are due this week. It doesn't look that strong to me. Georgia, one lawsuit filed. It was dismissed. There is a recount underway. Arizona, he filed three. He dropped two. There's one pending. It's very lame, that one. It's talking about how counties can't hand count ballots at vote centers as opposed to vote precincts, in response to which the AG there is basically saying there's just there's no legal basis for that whatsoever. Nevada, he filed two. One was upheld. It's pending about the polls being kept open late. My, my bottom line on, on this is if he prevails on all of these, maybe you're talking about a handful of votes, but the margins Biden is leading by in each of these states. They're big. You know, it, I'll just run through it and then I'll and then I'll get your thoughts. But Pennsylvania, it's Biden by 81,000. Michigan, Biden by 146,000. Nevada, Biden by 33,000. Wisconsin, Biden by 20,000. Gets tighter in Georgia and Arizona, where it's Biden by 13.9 thousand. Arizona's 10,000. Uh, we're going to have two recounts in, in two of those states, Georgia and Wisconsin. But to me, it feels like a Hail Mary. Um, I don't know. I, is there any chance those collectively, and I'm going to get to this massive allegation of the computers are corrupt, but could those collectively get them over the line? Doesn't sound like it. I mean, you know, again, you know, courts are going to be very reluctant to overturn um, a vote count in those numbers uh, without there being real solid evidence of irregularities or intentional misconduct that um, would have affected a larger number of votes than that. Because remember, that's the margin. You can't assume that every one of those votes that disqualified would be a Biden vote. So yeah, it, it seems highly unlikely. And I think, you know, calling it a Hail Mary is 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 probably a right way to, to, to characterize it, Megan. And I and, and what I'd also say is that 
when you look at the Pennsylvania lawsuit, I do think there's concerns about what the Pennsylvania Supreme Court did. But like you said, we have no idea whether those votes are included in the 81,000 vote margin, how many of those votes there are, and uh, you know what percentage of that vote Donald Trump got, which you have to assume he got some percentage of it. So, you know, again, I, I just think that there's it's a, it's a very, very long shot. But to me, the more damaging part of it is um, it's is to make the charge before you have the evidence. Right. So mm-hmm. that would be like me going into a grand jury as the U.S. attorney and handing out an indictment and saying to the grand jury, I'd like you to vote this indictment out. And the grand jury foreman says, but wait a second, we haven't heard the evidence yet. And I go, don't worry, I have the evidence. I'll give it to you later. That's what this is like. And that's what bothers me the most. Does the president have an absolute right to pursue these legal remedies? Yes. Does he have an absolute right to pursue recounts, especially in states that are close, like Georgia and Arizona, I'd say, are the two that are closest. I know he's pursuing one in Wisconsin, but that's the number of votes he won by four years ago in Wisconsin. And you know, I've spoken to people like Scott Walker and others who I trust um, in their judgment of close Wisconsin elections. And they've said, you know, that there's no way that a recount would overturn that larger margin. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. Recounts usually get votes that are close by like a thousand, a couple hundred, but not not huge like this, like a 33,000 uh, vote victory. I don't I don't think one's ever been reversed on a recount or because of a voter fraud charge. No. And listen, there's lots of people who who compare this to Bush versus Gore. And and all I'd say to that is, let's remember that Bush versus Gore was one state um, only that that state, when the voting was first stopped counting, was 900 votes in the entire state of Florida was the margin. When the recounts stopped, it was 537 votes. So and there were no allegations, really serious allegations of fraud. In that in that election, it really was a question of the standard by which you decide what is a vote and how they're counted. Right. Oh, you're bringing back like bad memories about hanging chads and do they count? What do they mean? And that was like, yeah, the pregnant chad, right? When you you punch the little thing, but it doesn't go all the way through, and the little the vote right. tally looks pregnant. <laughs> it's much different than alleging fraud which is an intentional theft of an election. So yes, Al Gore got 37 days to fight that. That's why I've said the president has a right to fight whatever he wants to fight. The, the, to me, the bigger problem is coming to a conclusion before you conduct the investigation. So you say, it's a fraud. Now I'm going to investigate to see if it is. Well, and, and when it comes to voter fraud, unlike what the Democrats say, you are always going to find a little. There is some voter fraud going on in this country. The the problem is the question is whether it's massive, whether it's large enough and you can prove it to reverse margins that huge. Listen, I had a predecessor uh, governor of mine named Brendan Byrne, a Democrat, two term Democrat. He was a very funny guy. And he he since passed away. But he used to say when he was alive that he made his wife promise that she would bury him in Hudson County, New Jersey, so that he could remain active in politics. Um, <laughs> you know, the there's no doubt that in places like Philadelphia and in New Jersey, historically, Illinois, historically, that there have been examples. I put people in jail for when I was U.S. attorney for voter fraud in New Jersey. It happens. But that's not the question here. 
The question is, did it happen, as you said, on such a scale that it would be able to reverse the kind of margins that we're talking about? And and I've said right from Wednesday morning after his 2.30 a.m. speech, show me. And if you have mm-hmm. the evidence, I will fight with you to make sure that the election is a fair and honest one. But if you don't have the evidence, you should not expect people to just blindly follow you and your allegations. All right, but let's let's talk about let's talk about Michigan though, because there was some funny business going on there, and that's a twenty electoral vote state. If Trump could get that one reversed, it'd be huge. However, he's losing by the most in Michigan. That's the toughest challenge, with one hundred and forty six thousand vote lead for Biden. Um, but I do want to get into the news of the day there because this is the first time I really perked up and said, "Now, now I'm interested. Now you got me. Now I'm paying attention." Because the Republican canvas board members there um, for it was basically the county in which Detroit is. Uh, They said they were bullied last night. They did vote to certify the vote. Um, And but then they almost immediately reversed themselves and said, I regret it. Their names are Monica Palmer and William Hartman saying I was bullied into doing it. I I do not believe we should have certified this. There are too many irregularities in in Detroit to justify accepting these election results. And the the only reason I said yes at the last minute is because I was promised that there would be an audit, which already the Democrats are saying they're not going to do. And I was threatened. These two, it got crazy, crazy. (laughs) Like people were showing up from the county, openly threatening these two if they didn't certify the vote, charging them with racism. And we have just one example. There's this is a guy named Ned Stabler, who's a well-known Detroit entrepreneur who got up there and shamed those two like they were about to cast their votes in the big white hats. Listen to Ned. You talked about not certifying Detroit, even though you acknowledge that Livonia, a city, by the way, I know, you know, is 95 percent white, had bigger variances than Detroit, which is 80 percent black. We understand. And you now added name. So I, I'm not going to try to change your mind. I just want to let you know that the Trump stick, the stain of racism that you, William Hartman and Monica Palmer have just Im- covered yourself in is going to follow you throughout history. Your grandchildren are going to think of you like Bull Connor or George Wallace. Monica Palmer and William Hartman will forever be known in southeastern Michigan as two racists who did something so unprecedented that they disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of black voters in the city of Detroit because they were ordered to. Well, he sounds nice. <laughs> so they caved. Well, and, and listen, you know, Megan, it, I don't have a lot of sympathy for people who accept positions as important as those positions who say, I'm going to vote to certify, and then as soon as they're done voting to certify, saying, I shouldn't have done it. Well, then mm. you shouldn't have done it, or you shouldn't have taken the jobs in the first place. And, and the problem I have is, okay, if there were serious irregularities in Detroit, and that wouldn't shock me, well, then show me. If, if these two folks, the Republicans on the Wayne County Canvassing Board, um, think there are serious enough irregularities, let me tell you. I'm sure that the Trump campaign would file a new lawsuit based upon this. And these guys could be witnesses one and two. Well, that may happen. That may happen because what they're saying is that there are discrepancies in nearly three quarters of Detroit's precinct poll books 
where ballots are supposed to be matched to qualified voters. I don't understand that either. But basically, they're saying that the ballots and the qualified voters, the numbers don't add up. There's some sort of discrepancies that they think warrants an audit, at least. And I mean, it's nuts. Why? So just do the audit. Who cares? Like, who cares? Do it. That's the case. They shouldn't have voted to certify. OK, and if you're going to be a public official, you've got to have a certain measure of strength and you're going to have guys like Ned who are going to yell at you all the time. From the time I was a county elected official and the eight years I was governor, I held 100 over 150 town hall meetings. You remember the Megan. I had people yell at me all the time. If every time awesome. you get yelled, you know, I had a lot of fun. If every time they yelled at you, you caved. Well, then you weren't a leader. You're a follower. So. Listen, if they have real evidence of discrepancies in matching, you know, the the ballots to qualified voters, that's a real problem. And then they need to present that to a court. And I, like you, have confidence in the fact that our courts will not permit those kind of things to happen if there is solid evidence to back it up. That's what I've said all along. I'm not one of these people who is who is yelling and screaming that the president needs to concede. I've never said that. What I've said is. The president needs to show the evidence. And if he shows the evidence and there's evidence to it, you can be guaranteed there'll be tens of millions of people in this country who will support him continuing to move on with his legal uh, challenges. But that hasn't been the case so far. If that turns out to be the case in Wayne County, then let's do it. And let's say, let's let's go down the road, Megan, hypothetically, and say it did change the result in Michigan. That's a lot of votes, but let's say it did. That still puts Donald Trump at 252. He's still 18 votes short um, of uh, electoral votes short of being elected president. And so, you know, we, we need to we need to make sure that, um, you know, we keep all of that in perspective at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I haven't been yelling and screaming. He must concede. But what I've been saying is if you want to pursue these legal actions, you have every right to, um, then you've got to be willing to put evidence forward that will convince not only a court, but the American people, um, that something was really untoward here. See, I think the court is actually, you, that's higher on the list of those who need to be convinced than the American people because Trump supporters will support him. I think there was a poll recently saying something like 75% of Republicans do believe that there have been shenanigans here and that there may be fraud and may question the result. Yes, that's going to be a political problem for whoever, you know, if it's Biden who um, in the next term. But the court's they get the final say, right? This is this is why we have courts. And and what's bothering me about this whole thing is the Trump campaign will put out, you know, they'll put out Rudy on like Maria Bartiromo's show. And with all due respect to Maria Bartiromo, she never cross-examines these guys. Like, I really want to know answers. I really, I'd love to sit across from one of those lawyers and ask really hard questions. Believe me, we're trying to get them. Um and and so you leave not knowing anything other than Rudy's spin. But in a courtroom, th- that doesn't work. In, in a courtroom, the court only takes evidence. And the lawyer's argument may or may not be relevant to the judge, but the evidence is going to rule the day. So they do have to put up or shut up there, which is why we should all be keeping our powder dry until the lawsuits resolve. I think we can trust the results of those. But the biggest thing they have going the most important thing I think they would say is this challenge to Dominion software, which they're saying is like the voting machines used in various of these swing states that they think allegedly, Rudy claims, 
may have been manipulated by an outside force that votes could have possibly been changed on election night, which they're saying the Dominion and and others, independent observers are saying that's absolutely impossible. You could not do that to those machines. But that's their biggest challenge. That's good. That's one that could wipe out tens of thousands of votes in various states. What do you think? Well, I mean, that's a high bar. Um, and let me be clear about what I said before. That's why I put courts first and the American people second. And so I agree with you on that. The courts are going to be the most objective, most informed um, judges of of what happened here. On the Dominion issue, listen, my understanding is those were the same voting systems in the main that were being used four years ago. Um, and, and in many states, not in all states, but in the majority of states, I think Dominion um, voting systems are being used. I think it's 28 out of the 50. So, you know, listen, I'm not a tech person, Megan. You know, I'm lucky if I can, you know, click onto a Zoom call correctly um, most of the time. So I'm not the guy to be your tech expert. I would just say this. Again, you have an obligation to show the evidence when you make the charge. But my whole problem with this is, and Rudy knows this, Rudy knows this. He was a U.S. attorney and a very successful one. You know, you you can't say, here's the charge, and I'll get back to you later on the evidence. It's irresponsible to do that. And so, you know, did they not know that the, these Dominion voting systems were being used in 28 states? Did they not know that they were used four years ago? We didn't hear any objection about them four years ago. Now we're hearing an objection about them now. Okay. If they've been manipulated by some outside force, who's the outside force? How are they manipulated? And where's your evidence? I can tell you that I know with these machines that they produce, they're usually electronic machines where you push buttons and hit a little button. It's not like the old, big, clunky voting machines where they have a dial in the back that counts the votes. But then they produce a paper result of the votes that were happening. You hit print and it prints it out. If, in fact... There's some way to have hacked that machine, and I mean thousands of machines to be hacked, and for the votes to have been changed, well, then we need to see the evidence for that. And if there is evidence for that, you can believe it will be the biggest election scandal in the history of the country. But again, my point is, I'm happy to fight that fight on the side of the president if it's true, but I've got to see the evidence that it is. That's the thing is, it's like you've got Republicans like you who you are helping Trump prepare for these debates. It's not like you were anti-Trump who would very much prefer a President Trump second term to a President Biden term who are saying, let's get real. Like I look around at the Republicans who are, you know, a lot of them are just trying to be loyal to Trump saying, well, maybe and we should wait for this whole process to play out. But I don't see a lot saying let me urge you, voters of America, to see the fraud. I just see, I, I sort of see loyalists trying to be kind and somewhat supportive. And, you know, you're, you were a loyalist. I mean, you're, you know, like I said, you helped prepare the guy. Have, have you talked to him at all? Do, like, do, do you know what his state of mind is? I don't. Um, I, 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 listen, I've been friends with him for 20 years. And, and I was the first major elected official to endorse him. In, in late February of 2016, um, I was the chairman of his transition. I campaigned for him. I spoke at his convention. And I chaired his opioid commission when he was president. 
Um, you know, and I voted for him in 2016 and in 2020. Um, so this is somebody who would prefer Donald Trump to be president um, to Joe Biden. But, you know, our obligation as leaders of our country is to speak the truth, the whole truth. And the whole truth here is the president has every, every right to pursue the legal remedies he's pursuing and the recounts he's pursuing. But please don't tell us what the result is before the investigation has been conducted. And if you if you know there was fraud, then show us the evidence of the fraud. Because Megan, if this were overturned, it would it would create. That's why I said number two, the American people, because it would create um, an absolute crazy situation in this country um, mm-hmm. that we're all going to have to deal with. And the only way to deal with that is to make sure the facts are correct. Um, and, and the last thing I, I'd say is on, you know, legitimacy, the legitimacy issue. I think both parties better start thinking about this issue because this really started back in 2000 with Bush versus Gore. When even after the, the Democrats were able to take it all the way to the United States Supreme Court and they lost, I remember being at George W. Bush's first inaugural and having Democrats there protesting and screaming that he was an illegitimate president. And then I remember Donald Trump leading the charge, quite frankly, um, during the Obama administration on this birther issue and saying that somehow he was an illegitimate president. And then we had Democrats saying because Trump had lost the popular vote in 16 and the margins were so thin in the states that he won that he was not a legitimate president. You know, we've got to knock this off. Um, elections have consequences. We need to live with wins or losses. I've been on both sides of that. I've won and I've lost. Winning's better, but when you <laughs> lose, you gotta just take it, right? That's it. And I think both parties are guilty of this, and we need to knock it off. It reminds me of that line from Bull Durham and Tim Robbins' character said, "Love winning. It's just like so much better than losing." <laughs> it's so great. Yes, the Nuke Lelouch, uh, um, you know, was was a, a purveyor. I didn't know of, of electoral wisdom, but it turns out he was <laughs> nicely done. All right, so let's talk about um, Georgia because whatever happens up at the top, all eyes are going to be on Georgia and these two runoffs. Now, I know that no no Republicans ever lost a runoff in Georgia, but this race could be different because it's really under the national spotlight. The Democrats are going to use all their money, every money they can get their hands on to support the Democratic candidates, and no idea whether it's true or it's not true, but the Washington Post is reporting that that GOP leaders, and I know you are you are one of them looking at at the Georgia Senate runoffs, are quote, increasingly alarmed about the party's ability to stave off the Democratic challengers in these two elections. Do you do you agree with the Washington Post? Is that true? Well, I'm not alarmed. Um, I, you know, under full disclosure, I'm one of the national co-chairs of the Georgia Battleground Fund, which is helping to raise the money along with Carl Rove and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Nikki Haley and Haley Barber. Um, so people should know that when they're listening, that um, I have a bias, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. Um, I, I, I'm very concerned about the races because of everything you just said. There'll be huge national attention on it. The The majority in the Senate is, is at stake. Uh, and you don't know what the turnout will look like on January 5th. That being said, I feel like we have the two better candidates. I think we have the two better arguments. Um, and I and I do believe that both those candidates, both Kelly Loeffler 
and David Perdue will win on January 5th. But not unless, as Republicans, we get we are united, we put our oar deep in the water, and everybody's you know pulling in the same direction. Um, and if we do that, I think we'll win that ra- the, both those races. Um, but um, you know, if you don't, and if we allow other things to distract us or divide us, well, then you could have a problem. Mm. The um, news just broke that the challenger to Kelly Loeffler, the Republican senator, uh, his name is Reverend Raphael Warnock. He is getting hit for comments he made in 2011 about the military and religion. Now, this is Georgia. Keep in mind, uh, I want to ask you how you think this is going to affect the race, if at all. Here's the soundbite. America, nobody can serve God and the military. You can't serve God and money. You cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. America, choose ye this day whom you will serve. You got Senator Tom Cotton saying this guy needs to remove himself from the race, that this is such an insult to everyone who served. What do you think? <laughs> uh, that's a problem. I mean, that's a big problem. That's a big problem anywhere in America. It's particularly a big problem in Georgia. Um, and I think that, you know, everybody should take into consideration what type of senator Reverend Warnock would be if that's what he believes. How will he be on national security? How will he be on questions of religious beliefs and protection of religious beliefs? Um, You know, I just think that it's just unacceptable commentary. Um, Now, should he drop out of the race? I always think that that's the candidate's choice. You know, candidate wants to stay in the race and get beat by 20 points. Well, it's the candidate's right to do it. He's got the, you know, the right from the initial election to be in the runoff. Um, So that's his call. But I do believe that every voter in Georgia should hear those words and be deeply disturbed by those words, because I can tell you that most of the men and women that I've met over my time in public life uh, who serve in the military um, also have a deep belief in whatever faith they follow. And to say that you cannot do both is ridiculous and insulting. Um, to the people who serve our country in the military and risk their lives. So I think Reverend Warnock's got a big, big political problem um, that will make the Kelly Loeffler race um, potentially um, a little more decisive. Yeah, he's not running for mayor of Portland. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a very different kind of race. So um, Bill de Blasio's cabinet where that would be perfectly acceptable. I have to ask you about Bill de Blasio and Governor Cuomo here in New, in New York, because now the New York City schools have shut down yet again, even though all the scientific studies are saying COVID's not being spread in schools. And they also say homeschool learning, distance learning is very bad for children. Very bad. Um, the, the governor here, your governor, the governor of your neighboring state, New York, has written a book touting his leadership skills during COVID. Meanwhile, the, the the cases are rising. He's arguing with the New York City mayor one day after Governor Cuomo, it, moments after Governor Cuomo said at a press conference, you're an idiot to a reporter for asking whether the New York City schools were going to shut. They shut 10 minutes later. They, these guys can't get along. They're, they're like children, de Blasio and Cuomo, touting their leadership, shut down, open up, shut down, open up, masks. Oh, wait, they didn't work. I... I don't I have yet to find a New Yorker who still believes in these two. What are your thoughts? Well, listen, Mayor de Blasio, in my view, 
is really the cause of all this. And it's his incredibly cozy relationship with the teachers union in New York City, which is causing this. Because as you said, there's no, there's no empirical evidence that COVID is being spread in the schools. In fact, quite the opposite has been the empirical evidence I've seen. Um, this is him being in bed with the teachers union in New York City. This guy has been the worst mayor of New York City of my lifetime. He makes me yearn for the days of David Dinkins. And I never, I'd have a mayor who would make me yearn for the days of David Dinkins. But David Dinkins was a better mayor than this guy. Um, Governor Cuomo's in an awful tough spot as governor because, you know, de Blasio really has jurisdiction over this school system. So here you have Cuomo saying it's not going to close. And do I believe de Blasio closed the schools just to prove Cuomo wrong? I don't think he did it for that reason, but I think it was like an extra added benefit to de Blasio. You're right that these guys don't like each other. They don't get along with each other. Um, and now, you know, de Blasio's actions, not Cuomo's, because Cuomo, I think, has all along been someone who has been very reluctant to, to mess with the schools. Um, but de Blasio here, this is clearly to me um, a, a sop to the teachers union. And that's what he's doing at the, at the grave, grave cost uh, of lack of education for the the students in the city. And it's not right. Not all of them have the ability to do things remotely or do them effectively remotely. And it's just wrong. No. Oh, especially people who are in lower socioeconomic classes. Those are the kids who get hurt the most. The The cases of abuse, in-home abuse go up. And once again, the teachers union, the, the reason America first fell in love with Chris Christie, as I was on the air watching all the moments that went viral, was your willingness to take on those teachers unions, which had you know previously been untouchable. And you didn't care. You would fight. You would say all the things that needed to be said. And instead, what we what we see is the truth, which is the teachers unions they they don't even care about the teachers. They really don't care about the kids. They care about themselves, the group, the union itself, and its money-making ability. But the last thing on their list is kids. And man, is that manifesting in New York. You're preaching to the choir. And, and, I, and, and I lived it for eight years. I lived them beating me up for eight years, and I beat them right back. Um, you know, the, the, the opinion of uh, the public opinion of the teachers union was never lower than when I was governor. And here's why, because I was actually willing to speak the truth about it. Bill de Blasio is a captive of the union movement. It is only just through the grace of reinstituted term limits that we will be done with him in another year and two months. And when we are in New York City, I'm hopeful that the people will have learned from this awful eight-year experiment. And you know, kids need to be in school. I, I think you're right. You know, Megan, these liberals constantly say that who they care about are the least fortunate. And in the educational scheme, by denying vouchers, by denying charter schools, by now closing public schools um, in response to COVID, the people they are damaging the most are those children and their families whose dreams are wrecked because their education can't be moved forward. And and I'll tell you another thing. The thing I'm really worried about, about any further significant lockdowns, is what you alluded to. We are seeing an enormous rise in domestic violence, an alarming rise in drug addiction, and an alarming rise in suicide. All of that is the result of the lockdowns and the economic downturn and the loss of jobs 
and ability to support your family that's been created by these lockdowns. And I think every public official better start thinking about when we get to a vaccine and this is all over, what type of America will be coming back? And I will tell you, it's going to be an America that's more drug addicted, more victims of domestic violence, and we're going to have a lot of victims of suicide who didn't have to die because lots of public officials played to the grandstand and overreacted here. Yeah. And for what? Right. For what? It's not spreading. The kids are not spreading it. And they just it's like some teachers, yes, are completely paranoid. The ones who are in the high risk groups can stay at home and protect themselves and do it from via Zoom. And the others, teachers generally tend to be young, can go in class and be distanced and have masks on. Our schools have been doing it. It's been working out beautifully. Um, now we do have we have a couple of vaccines coming out. Uh, miraculously, we got Pfizer. We've got the two other companies, Moderna. Um, you you famously, sorry, uh, got COVID after some of those Trump debate sessions. And can you tell how long were you in the ICU for? Seven days. Holy cow. So that must have been scary. It was. And especially the first three days were very scary. And um, when, listen, the thing about COVID is that this disease is random and brutal, depending upon who gets it. And when the, the symptoms finally hit me, they hit me like a freight train. I went from in the morning having a 96.5 degree temperature, no symptoms at all, and great breathing to six hours later, feeling like I had been run over by a train and went downhill from there uh, and ultimately had to be hospitalized. And so now I have a 20-year-old son who caught COVID at Providence College. He quarantined himself for 14 days and never had a symptom. That's the randomness of this disease. You just don't know who it's going to hit. But we do know that if you get a little bit older, if you have asthma, if you're overweight, you know, so I go three for three on that one. And, and you know, that, that it affects those people more. Um, and so, you know, it was a really scary time, Megan, especially those first three days. Because also what people don't think about is you're also in isolation. So you are by yourself with just your thoughts and you're focusing on every symptom and whether it's getting worse. And that to me, the hardest part of the first three days was monitoring myself and the, and, and the fear that came along with that. And so, you know, listen, I was someone who was very good about wearing my mask for seven months. I wore my mask every time I went outside, every time um, you know, I was going into a group of people because I had asthma and I and I was concerned about getting it. And I let my guard down for four days. Four days in, and, and only let my guard down and only took the mask off when I was inside the gates of the White House because I was tested every day that I was there. And I was led to believe that everybody else was tested. Turns out that's not true. And so I think that what I want people to learn why I gave the interviews I gave afterwards and wrote the op-ed for the Wall Street Journal was to let people know that you're not safe anywhere from this virus and that you should never let your guard down because the ramifications of it for me, I'm fortunate. Like you said, when we got, we got together this morning, glad you're alive. Me too. And it could have gone the other way. And I have two daughters to walk down the aisle yet and I'm not done with my life. Um, and I, I, I'm just 
thankful to God and to everybody out there who was praying for me. I got an amazing number of letters and cards and emails for people who were praying for me. And I know that the great medical care I got and the power of those prayers combined, you know, have me sitting here talking to you today. But you're notwithstanding what you've been through, you don't sound pro lockdown, pro another lockdown. I'm not. Because I do believe that with the use of masks, with the washing your hands frequently, and with staying out of big crowds, that we can flatten this curve um, and we can we can survive till the vaccines get here. Does that mean that no one will die? No, Megan, it doesn't. This is a pandemic. And in a pandemic, some people will die. But guess what? During the lockdown, people died too. So we can't think that there's some type of cure-all outside of a vaccine, which, you know, both the case of Pfizer and Moderna appear to be 95% effective. People should understand how great that is. The flu shot is usually generally 50 to 60% effective. So you have a a vaccines here that show 95% effectiveness. That's going to mean a lot for this country. But until then, I don't believe we should shut down. I believe we should continue on with our lives but taking those common sense steps. And most public health people are saying exactly the same thing. Well, I mean, whatever whatever people may think of Trump and how he handled COVID, he does deserve huge credit for sparking the race toward a vaccine. And that's and Pfizer was part of that. And we got one. I mean, miraculously, we got one in record time. In fact, we have now a couple companies with one that's 95% effective. And I wonder, you know, on the subject of Trump, just to tie the two subjects we've been discussing back together, what does he do now? Let's say the legal challenges play out and, and they don't go in his favor. The December 14th is the date by which the Electoral College delegates in each state meet to vote. There's a lot of speculation about whether Trump would ever walk out of the White House, quote, a loser, you know, which is uncharitable or, you know, having lost and whether he would ever attend an inauguration, peacefully pass the baton. What do you think? Well, listen, I think the president will leave on January 20th or before. Um, I think any speculation that he would, you know, try to stay in the White House just is ridiculous. That's not who did not not the guy I know. Um, I would say that in terms of whether he'll attend the inauguration, if it's Joe Biden's inauguration, which I assume it will be, um, I think that if the president feels like he had the opportunity to pursue all of his legal remedies and that he fell short, I would hope that he would go. Um, and, and cause I think it's an important part of the American transfer of power, um, and the peaceful transfer of power for people to see that. Now let's remember, Megan, it's not unprecedented that uh, American presidents don't go to their successors, um, their successors inauguration. John Adams did not go to Thomas Jefferson's because of the bitterness of that campaign and his feelings towards Jefferson at that time. His son must run in the family. John Quincy Adams did not go to Andrew Jackson's inaugural for the very same reason, a very bitter, ugly campaign. And Harry Truman did not go to Dwight Eisenhower's inaugural because of the really bitter feelings even though they didn't run against each other between Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower. So it's very rare, but not unprecedented. And so the president's going to have to make a decision about which camp he wants to be in. Um, and I think that 
the how he does in these legal challenges, meaning does he believe that there, he got a fair hearing, may have a role to play in all that. All right, last question. I talked about you becoming a national star with those sparring matches. And, you know, as we saw in the debate where you basically ended Marco Rubio's presidential run, it's tough to be on the wrong side of Chris Christie in a debate. Um, so what happens with you now? What it You've got to be looking a little bit towards 2024. Are we going to see you throw your hat in the ring again? Well, you know, Megan, I, you, obviously, you know, two weeks after the last election, you don't make any kind of decisions like that. And if you do, you know, you're just being foolish because you don't know what life's going to bring you. But let me answer it this way. Um, I wrote a book uh, about a year and a half ago now on my life and my career to that point. And the title of the book was Let Me Finish. And I didn't title the book by mistake. Mm, nice. Good tease, Governor. So good to talk to you and reconnect. Well, Megan, it's great to reconnect with you. Um, good to have a Jersey Shore person on the phone with another Jersey Shore person. I am thrilled that your podcast is out there and doing so well. And um, I want you to continue to be a strong voice um, to the American people. You're an important part of our political and our cultural discussion. Keep it up. I'm a big fan. Thank you so much. Very grateful. And yeah, I'll see you down the shore. You got it. And we're going to go from Christie to Carvel, James Carvel, that is, political guru of the left, always with interesting insights, and today will be no disappointment. But first, listen, no one wants to deal with cyber threats or find out that their personal information has been compromised online. It's scary. But that's especially true during the holidays when traffic is so high. But with all that holiday gift shopping and browsing online, you really could be one bad click away from a cyber threat headache. Get Norton 360 with LifeLock and help protect your identity and your devices against cyber threats. Norton 360 with LifeLock provides all-in-one protection with device security, identity theft protection, and a VPN for online privacy and more. Help protect your private and financial information when you go online with real-time device protection. If you have an ID theft protection problem, a U.S.-based identity restoration specialist will work with you to fix it. You won't just be floating in the air trying to get through to customer service. You get a live human being to walk you through it. You can browse anonymously in security with a no-log VPN. It's got bank-grade encryption to help you keep your information private. No one can prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. You know that. But Norton 360 with LifeLock is a powerful ally to you this holiday season. You can save 25% or more off your first year. Just go to Norton.com slash MK. That's Norton.com slash MK for 25% off. And now, James Carville. James Carville, thank you so much for being here. Well, great to be here, Megan. I haven't seen you since my tenure at Fox back in like 2014, so it's good to good to be uh, talking to you again. I know. I always enjoyed our discussions, and I love how you, you call it like you see it. You don't really care much about how people are going to look at you, which I can relate to. Um, so let's let's start with where we are right now in this process. I know you, you thought we'd have a result <laughs> either election night or within 24 hours. Not exactly, as it turns out. I know most Democrats will come up to me and say, like, he lost, right? He lost, right? Reassure me, he lost. And Republicans will look at me and say, like, does he have anything? Do you think there's anything he's got going that could really turn it? So I ask you what you think in response to those. First of all, I, I had a pretty good on television election night. I was pretty sure he was going to win. And ensuing days, let's say the next day and Thursday, it was evident. It's not really, it, it's not really that close of an election. 
I mean, he's going to win the popular vote by somewhere between four and a half percent and five percent. And, you know, you get 306 electoral votes. And I'm, I mean, some of the states were I mean, Georgia and Arizona were obviously very close. Wisconsin was close. Michigan wasn't even that close. Neither was Pennsylvania. So, I mean, yeah, we know it's the outcome of the election is done. There's no, there's, there's no doubt here. Uh, just given the unique circumstances we're in, we just have to wait for the Electoral College to meet. But it's inevitable and it's 100%. And it's not, like I said, it won't go down in history as a you know, really tight election. It won't, not, not a landslide, as some people hope, because I hope, but it was certainly a clear win. So do you think, so December 14th is the date by which the Electoral College delegates are supposed to meet to vote. Is that the date this is official? I think that's it. I, I, I think, you know, Brett, uh, you know, when I get old, I'll see things. But it's, it's around that time. But my best guess is that when they actually vote and it comes in, in the, what effect is that going to have on Trump? What effect is that going to have on the supporters or, or whatnot? I have no idea. But it, it's as sure as we sit here that that's what's going to happen. Let's talk about what happened down ballot. Because while the the Democrats were pleased with what happened at the presidential level, certainly there were real concerns about down ballot. And I actually just I just started to look at it. I mean, I I realized that they they lost House uh, seats instead of gained them. And it it doesn't look like they're going to win the Senate. But then I started to look at what really was happening in the states. There was a good report in The Atlantic that kind of laid it out. And I thought, oh, gosh, well, James is a good person to ask about this. This is what they said was. Eric Holder, uh, he formed this National Democratic Redistricting uh, Committee, and and their goal was to flip state legislative chambers in 18 and 20 to give more power to the Democrats at the state level. And that what really happened is they failed to flip a single legislative chamber that they they lost majorities that they gained in states like New Hampshire. In, In Texas, they needed nine seats to win the state house after they did make some inroads in 2018 and they failed to gain a single seat. They struggled in Texas, Florida, Iowa, and North Carolina, where Trump did great and made it impossible for them to oust down ballot Republicans. But even in states like Minnesota, um, they lost their majorities, which are, is a state Biden carried. Same in New Hampshire. So, how did that happen? Well, it's, it's first of all, it's disappointing from a Democratic standpoint. And look, at, just look at Florida, where fifteen dollar minimum wage got sixty percent of the vote. And, and Biden barely broke 47. Um, I think that there was the whole leftist part of the Democratic Party, the far left, I, I think they walked into a trap, <laughs> to be honest with you. Uh, they're, you know, and we're just not that effective. We're not that effective in messaging down ballot. I think we got knocked out of our 2018 game where we did quite well. And we really spent our time talking about, you know, things like the minimum wage, things like prescription drug costs, things like expanding health care, things like infrastructure, and things that were more relatable to people. I think that uh, President Biden did a, a good job on that, probably maybe lost a little focus toward the end. But it, 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 there's no way that you can describe what happened below the presidential level is anything that was, was not encouraging result for Democrats. What do you mean you got, they got walked into a trap? What, what do you mean? Well, I think that, that we, when people started saying defund the police, and I, I think a lot of people heard something that was, that they didn't much care for. I, I think that the country is amazing at the moment after the George Floyd murder, I guess it's 
correct word to call it. So what I'd call it, there was a great deal of uh, of sympathy and a great deal of looking at it. And they just the the, the left just went way off in a in a in a really uh, I thought extreme position. You know, the the Democratic Party rather decisively decided what it wanted to be. It, I mean, you had a classic matchup between Joe Biden, who's a, a you know, Democratic politics since the early 70s, and Bernie Sanders, who offered a, a real left-wing agenda for America. And he was highly funded. It was everywhere. And Biden beat him decisively. But some of the messaging that got out and sloganeering that was going on, I think, had an adverse effect. I really did. You mean you? I know you've spoken before about the woke, the woke killing that yeah, the Democrats. Some, some of these people races. need to take. They need to take a nap. Some of these people. I mean, <laughs> they don't even have a majority. They don't even have a remotely a. They they're a minority of of the Democratic Party, and somehow or another they allow. We allowed them to define the rest of us. We, we, we the Democratic Party made a, a a very strong statement about that. But look, look at the returns and how how much better Biden did than Bernie Sanders. I mean, you know, if if you want to believe in democracy, it's pretty clear where not just the country stands, it's pretty clear where where the Democratic Party stands. We've been talking about that on this show about how how big is that leftist block within the Democrats. I'm always quick to point out liberals. That's not the same as leftists. That's a, I'm a liberal. I'm a, I'm a liberal. Right. I'm a liberal. I'm a liberal. All right. That, that I'm not a moderate Democrat. I'm a liberal Democrat. I believe in expanding health care. I believe in higher taxes on, on wealthy people. I, I believe, you know, that there has to be, you know, I, I believe that government intervention that is smart and targeted can make people's lives better. So I'm not, however, we we can know exactly how strong they are because you can look. Because again, Bernie Sanders was a classic leftist. I mean, he didn't make any bones about it. He and he was very disciplined on message. He was the best funded candidate out there. He was in every debate. Everybody had a chance to know exactly what he was for. Joe Biden is a you know solid candidate. I think when Biden described as most exciting that 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 they've ever seen. And the the result was overwhelmingly in favor of Biden. So how they're not even that influential in, in, in within the Democratic Party. And then the answer is when Congresswoman Spanberger said, you, you know, you, you told the squad that you're the reason that we lost these races. That the answer is we should have done more canvassing. I mean, come on, please, mm-hmm. more canvassing is that the answer? Yeah, well, I think that AOC, I heard her in an interview with the New York Times the other day on The Daily saying, um, it, we're not to blame. It's not our messaging that's to blame. It's it, we're our voters got out. They need our voters to get motivated. And they do get motivated by things like that. And they use those voters. And what really needs to happen is the rest of the Democratic Party needs to listen to us. Well, I, the, you, um, we just we just listen to you. You, 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 we listen to you. You spent hundreds of million dollars with Bernie Sanders on television. You endorsed him. I mean, we just went through this. You had a forum. You had a podium. You were there. You were defeated soundly, soundly. 
uh, 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 what, how about what else do you need to see? That the, we have we had we had a, a a contest, and the contest had a definitive outcome, and they want a rematch after losing sixty five thirty five. Why don't you figure a way to advance your ideas within the broader democratic coalition? Mm-hmm. All right. I mean, that day. But they have a big microphone, James. I mean, you you I think they've done a good job of they have done a good job of tarring Democrats with all this woke stuff. Well, the press, a, a lot of the press loves this story. Right. I mean, they just love it. And the truth of that is, it's not. But on the other hand, question they are they are a small part of the democratic democratic coalition. I mean, if you would have thought it was an earthquake that they they win seats in central Boston and the Bronx, which you know when they come back and and, and win a seat that has under a, a partisan voting index on Cook of under plus Democratic twenty, I, I'll be in impre- I'll be impressed. I mean they. They don't respect voters, right? Democratic voters, and I and I'm talking about you know black voters in the Mississippi Delta and suburban women in Fairfax County. They decidedly said what they wanted, and these people just don't have any respect for these voters. They apparently they think that they're smarter than Democratic voters. I don't know, and no one challenges them. You had a chance. You put you get you had the best candidate you could imagine out there. There's nobody that ever run for president has had more message discipline than Bernie Sanders. He had the most money, he had the most everything, and if you're so mobilized and you represent so many people, why did you get your ass beat? I mean, it's just a simple question. What do you question. think it is specifically? What what specifically do you think is is the messaging that's problematic? Well, th- th- this is a country. People keep saying this is a center right country. I disagree with that. I think it's a, it's, it's a center left country. You know, again, you look at things like the minimum wage. But I, I'm not going to. It's a, it's an argument with it that that just goes on and on and will we'll never get resolved. I, I mean, people did not want, you know, to ban private health insurance. I mean, it's simple. It was not. And, and once people would touch it. Once Elizabeth Warren touched that, she was done. And, and I'm talking about within the Democratic Party. We haven't even gotten out of the Democratic Party yet to where we run in, in a general election. And they just, they have contempt. They, but first of all, Bernie Sanders is not a Democrat. I don't think AOC is a Democrat either. And they, at, at some level, they express contempt for our voters because our voters told them exactly what they thought of them which was very little. What do you think about the, it's not only the woke stuff from that crew, but a lot of sweeping condemnations of Trump voters. And, you know, you got Biden at the top calling for unity, which, you know, I, I'll give Biden the benefit of the doubt and say he actually would like that. But the problem isn't Biden so much as like the squad and, and just, Two days ago, you had Ilan Omar out there. I'll, I'll let the soundbite speak for itself, but here's how she refers to the Trump rallies. Take a listen. He chose to speak about me at every single rally. It didn't really matter where he was, uh, right. sometimes multiple times in a day, um, as he had held his Klan rallies throughout the country. What comes through is that she's really about herself. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so we 
we did a project. I was part of a project, and you can look it up. It's called, it's called American Bridge. We spent $80 million in 77 counties, mostly rural and small towns in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And we had a real impact on the boat, right? And we, what we did is we did it, uh, it was all generic. It was all people in their own voices, you know, and, and was, we, we did what we call created a permission structure that said, look, I, you know, I voted for Trump in 2016, but I, I feel it this way. And, and you can, uh, it's probably on our website. And when you look at the difference that it made, and if and the Democrats have to understand, I, I can't pound this in the head enough, 18% of the country elects 52 senators. You can't get it done with the urban core. I'm sorry. It's impossible. It is not going to ch change. The Senate is not going to change. And until you develop a broad strategy that encompasses everyone, then, you, you, yeah, you, you, you can win the popular vote in presidential election. You probably could, could do that fairly. And you can... You know, Biden's got an impressive win here. But if you try to run this urban strategy, you're, you're doomed to fail. It just, the, the, the math is not there. And, you know, and these people have ultimate safe seats. So they can say anything they want to. And then the, the, the Democrats are out there, like Abigail Spanberg, who's in a not safe seat. You know, thank God she won, but it was it was really close. They just can't accept. Basically, the party does not agree with you. And instead of saying, how do we how do we fit in or how do we try to advance some of our ideas in the Democratic Party? They just ignore the election results. And. You know, and, and, and of course, you know, and a lot of people don't like this, this whole tyranny. I don't know what the with the word is cancel culture or, or, or whatever. But most mm -hmm. people don't live their lives like that. And tyranny is tyranny. If it's tyranny from the right, it's tyranny. If it's tyranny from the left, it's tyranny. Well, what do you think is going to happen now? Because some of these groups are, are sort of rearing up and saying, we put you in office and we expect to be to be heard. You know, there was um, the Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors, who wrote an open letter to Biden Harris saying, we want something for our vote and re, re you know, double down on we want the police defunded. And, you know, they say, if you don't want that, then you're in favor of police killing black people. And, you know, and like you say, I think the vast majority of Americans, even I think Al Sharpton came out and said that that's nonsense. Like people don't want the police defunded. Black people don't want the police defunded. Let me, let me just start before we go any further. There is a significant problem with policing and race in this country. All right. That just is. And you can go statistic after statistic. You don't even have to do, you know, headline videos. So let's start with that. How do you, how, how does a society, because if you do, uh, I've, I've seen a lot of males races, a lot of focus groups, and one of the biggest complaints that poor people have or, or, or black people have as well. Yeah, if, if it's in the French Quarter, the police get there in three minutes. If it's out here in New Orleans East, it takes three hours. And, of course, that, that, that I think anybody would tell you that 
you could certainly uh, they could reorient the police. You could have social workers going out and breaking up marital disputes. It's where more policemen are killed, by the way, breaking up marital disputes than they are breaking up armed robberies. All right, that 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 may be ways to have more effective policing, but we're not going to we're not going to, nor should we, nor you know, get rid of police. And by the way, the most integrated institution in the United States is high-end policing in urban areas. Mm-hmm. All right, the, 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 it, I, I, I actually would consider myself a supporter of Black Lives Matter because one of the, the 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 real structures of institutional white supremacy, which I'm definitely opposed to, is that you devalue Black lives. You, you know, you, you you look at a at a crime stat. You say, "Well, gee, that's not in my neighborhood." All right. So, I mean, the the the, the concept that the the slogan is is one. It, and when it came out, it had remember a lot of people supported that. Oh yeah, the slogan. I don't think it's, anybody... it's I, I right. I don't have. I mean, and and I don't. <clears throat> and I understand, and I, I never say, "Yeah, but all lives matter." And I understand that, but that's not what they're saying. And. That there, that it's just such a history in this country, or in the world, I'm sure, of just devaluing the lives of black people, and 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 and, and I think that in talking about how we can, you know, as a society, we can have more effective policing, more humane policing. I, I think a lot of people would have been open to that. A lot of people would have been open to that and understand that. It, 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 of course, they never, they, they're always right, no matter what. So, it, you know, so then after you lose and everything, you said, well, you need more canvassing, please. I mean, that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard in my life. And your point is, it's not that we didn't get out there and canvass. It's that your message of defunding the police and related issues didn't resonate. And you got to come to terms with that. It resonated the wrong way. <laughs> it resonated all right. Mm-hmm. It just resonated the wrong way. Spamberger, right? Is that, is that her uh, name? Abigail. I think it's Abigail. So, sorry, Abigail. Okay. In yeah. the, the Virginia congresswoman who said, yeah. this is this defund police thing is killing us. It's killing us. Like, we just, we should never mention that. And we should stay 25 feet away from socialist. But, but, but the response to that in the meeting by Rashida Talib was, what you're really saying is you don't care about black voices. I mean, that. That's you know, where we I are. Had, if 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 I, I'm not gonna tell you because they're friends of mine, but the number of, of black leaders that have called me, all right, that and and express disdain for this is they're pretty powerful people. That they're, they're not. Did you see what James Clyburn said? I mean, he 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 just he just had enough of them. I mean, I I, I haven't talked. I I haven't talked to to Congressman Clyburn since the election, but I mean, I've talked to him frequently before that, and he was very public about it. Uh, I feel like we've had a, f- a few black leaders come out and say, we're, we're not for this. But I don't, th- th- I do think you're right that the media is part of the problem, because if you watched a lot of the media, you would think this is a mainstream position that people need to be canceled. It's, it's, it's a comment. small part of the Democratic Party. All they have to do is go look at the you know what? Election returns. But you know what's happening in a in the country. It's cultural now, right? It's like we've been talking about this on the show where 
your employer says you got to go to some implicit bias race training or you can't work there. And then the white people are told to just sit there in silence while they're shamed for past actions of the United States. And it creates racial division. Then it becomes partisan. I, you know, that gets that gets tagged on on the Democrats, too. Not, you know, Joe Biden hasn't really been pushing that stuff, although he did say he's bringing back these critical race theory, quote, training sessions. So how do how do we resolve that? I think that some people, you know, I think workplace, you, you can make it a, a genuine and more secure place for people without without going like totally like overboard. I mean, American history, the real American history is infused with enough racism to make you sick. They don't have to add more to it. The, the actual truth is pretty bad. But yeah, it just becomes, you, you know, people can't constrain themselves. And then you get you get you, you get out there. But I'm not a uh, uh, you know I, I mean you know you've faced issues in in, in your life. Something you can't sure can't say that sexism out there is not real because it is. And that th- there are certainly things that people can do that can you know it can make people more aware it it, it 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 can improve people's lives but sometimes they just go like overboard and then they, you have all these like consulting firms that go sell these companies and stuff and it's like anything else and, you know there was a longshoreman uh philosopher back in the 80s called eric hoffer and he made one of the smartest observations i've ever heard in my life he said that every movement starts out as a cause, moss into a business, and ends up a racket. And <laughs> you can just see that in everything you see. Then I, I, I'll give Trump credit. He just went right to a racket. But mo- most of the time, people start, hey, let's get together. You know, let's, let's have a, a church and true believers. And say, well, we've got to montage this thing. So let's, you know, past the collection plate. Then somebody says, yeah, yeah, let's start a foundation and then we can pay everybody out of it. I mean, it just, it just, it, it, any, any movement, no matter from what side of ideological spectrum that you come from or anything is always subjected to the natural evolution of things, cause, business, racket. So what do you make of What's happening right now, and and this is part of the broader messaging, but when it comes to unity, uh, you're you're married to a brilliant Republican. Everyone loves your marriage because it's, it sadly it's weird for a Democrat and a Republican to be so so kind to one another that they fall in love and have a happy marriage. Um, but you know a thing or two about unity and how to get along with somebody whose political views are diametrically opposed to your own. Well, when we got married, it, it was more common than it is now, I guess. Um, and I don't know. Well, first of all, Trump is the, the greatest anti-unifier that ever lived. And it hopefully, uh, President-elect Biden, you know, I think there are people that are kind of looking for an exit ramp. But are unsure of how to how to do it and i i hope that he has the wherewithal and the skills to to you know we're always going to be pretty divided country it, yes. it, it's extreme right now um but 
maybe, you know, he's the, everybody's hoping, well, maybe that's the guy we need. Maybe he's a little older. Maybe he's not that, you know, fiery. You know, maybe he seems like he's a kind of nice to everybody. I, 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 you know, I, I have some, I got to have some hope that this kind of example will help people. But, I, you know, there's a story by a really good reporter that names people that they're scared to death that Trump is going to sell the nation's secrets to the Russians. This guy's name Shane Harris. You can look the story up. I had him on my podcast. So let me say, you, you're, you're, you're a journalist with 17 years reporting. You name names in your story. It was not, it was not on the condition of anonymity. Of people just flat out saying, I told my students at LSU, you know, I sat in this classroom and I said, I wonder what it would like if you were sitting here in January of 1861 or, or January of 1941. I, I don't know, maybe you're sitting here. I, I, I mean, if, in, in, if you look at, to me, which are the two most ma massive problems that this country faces, one is inequality and the other is climate probably in somewhat reverse order because I think inequality would be easier to fix than climate. But it, it, it I mean, and to me, it is so evident that on every level that those two issues just dwarf everything. And I, I don't know how we're going to, you know, reorient, reorient ourselves and well, that's, a, can I say that's, that's what I find so impossible about it. So Biden gets up there and says like, yeah, let's, what, what he actually said was we're united, we're healed. So no, <laughs> we're not. And yeah. I don't see us getting there, but, but listen, I, what he means is unite around my agenda. And I wasn't thinking about the Republicans thinking they're like, yeah, we're totally up for uniting. So you're going to unite, uh, unite around our, our pro-life policies. Come on over. It's great. We'll work that, together. That, we'll all be that, as can, one. You can have we've had political divisions and disagreements i'm just telling you inequality and climate are both existential threats and, how so and what do you mean inequality inequality is that if you go it, 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 look at conservatives economists they tell you the same thing the, the growing gap between rich people and poor people and it, the, the the pandemic is nothing has nothing nothing but make it worse that at a, at a, at an end and i mean i think some of the the disorder we have probably a lot of it from both the left and the right are being fueled by this sense of abandonment of inequality of i, can, I don't have any place for me to go in my life and you know mm -hmm. the the one percent or go whatever you want to call it or, or, or take it off like that how can anybody be idiotic enough to deny that there's not profound and, and adverse things happen to our climate we had a category five hurricane in the middle of november all right i mean please and, that doesn't prove that we have know, a climate of course, problem. Of course, God. Megan, no, come on. Dead, um, dead, I, I can't. Look, I, I, if, to argue that I'm not, that is not I'm not arguing that there's no climate that, change. I, I'd not. say one but, event One event can't prove a thing. No. Uh, you know how we got to Hurricane Iota? Do you know how you get to Iota? You yeah, go you've got to go through every other letter. Yeah, you've got to go through every other letter. Then you got to start with the Greek alphabet. All right? <laughs> That's how when you, you got to go that. Greek. I cannot, yeah, when you got to no, go listen, Greek. No, right? listen, I got it. But listen, look, I understand. I, I, I don't want to debate on climate I, I change because it happens to be an issue I, I, that yeah, I, I just, feel strongly about, too. I, I mean, I believe in it. I, I believe I'm, in climate I'm, change. I'm, the only question is, is, I'm, is, is who's causing it? Well, of course we know who's causing it. 
so Biden during the debates is saying, yes, he wants to put an end to the oil industry and then gets up there and says, unite. Well, the Republicans aren't going to agree with that. The oil companies don't want, you know what I'm saying? Like, I I understand if he had said, let's lower the temperature. Tell me uh, me where Biden said I want to get rid of the oil industry. He said it explicitly in his second debate with Trump. I said, again, he he said he'd like to see us be off of fossil fuels by 2050. So would everybody else. The unfortunate thing is we'll probably, for the most part, be off of most of them. The question is, what about between now and then? I, I, I mean, that, that, you know, people are not going to stop driving cars, but, but I don't think that anybody is going to be driving a piston, buying a new car with a piston engine, but probably in five years. I mean, it just, and, and some of it is just economic. I mean, it just seems that the, the battery storage capacity has gotten so so effective. I, I'm just saying, just he, he said it explicitly. Yeah, I, I, you're in I the oil industry. I, again, and this I've is never, a quote. Here's the quote. Here, say. you well, did okay, too. He said, I would okay. transition away from the oil industry. Yes. Of course. Yes, the oil industry pollutes significantly. It has to be replaced by renewable energy over time. Of course. That's I, I, as explicit I, you're going to get from a politician. Is that controversial? Is that controversial? Yes. Yes, it uh, is. To me, that is not remotely. That is not. That's because of your belief system. But if. Uh, you know, if you work, uh, if, you if you work you in the oil industry in Pennsylvania, in, that uh, you know, people worked in the buggy whip manufacturing business. All right, people worked in it, it, people worked in a lot of different things, and he didn't say he's getting. He's saying we have to trans, we have to transform to renewables. No, so he said we are. He said transform transition away from the oil yeah, industry. Yes, he's very do. clear. Of course, and we so do. You, but you tell me, get, he said, get rid of it. Yeah, look, Megan, we just don't we. I am just fanatical on this subject. Right? I know. I and get I, it. You're entitled to your view. He, he, but don't, let's not said, pretend these are universal no, he, issues we can he, all unite no, on without said, disagreement. You know what? If you, don't, if you don't think that we need to transition from fossil fuels to renewables, uh, I, I think you better like try to read up and rethink this. Now, <laughs> I, we're certainly not going to be able to do it tomorrow, but I, I would 100,000% agree with the statement that we need to transform from from fossil fuels to renewable. I just think, you know, we're we're so far apart and and it's it's going to be hard to put the the egg back together because I look around as like the, you got this Trump accountability project making lists of the people who quote enabled him. Well, what I really think is screw you, Trump accountability list keepers, right? That's politics. We we work for Republicans, we work for Democrats, we move on with our lives. There's no point in demonizing an entire group of people as well, they're, they're going to have I you know that, that, that I think they'll probably have a difficult time finding employment. I think you know that. But, but stop you know, it. people have a right. You know, people have a right. It's nothing free speech. If you say I don't, I don't think you should hire this guy because of that, or you should hire some. I, I don't know. I, 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 that's not where my head is. You know, people, human beings. George Mitchell said that you know, only human beings uh, can make war, and only human beings can stop wars. And to to say that we can't get through this is, I think, is to to not give history its due at some point. I mean, uh, in every threat that we have by death, and you know, in the world that we deal with, what has got, my opinion, is nothing but worse. And I maybe the president elect, and maybe the new Congress, you know, who knows? Maybe they. I don't know. Maybe they'll get moved by the Holy Spirit or something. I have no idea. 
But I mean, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm hoping for. But I, th- I think his tone is going to be, you know, I think he's trying to do what he can to, to at least bring a, 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 as a preamble, a more perfect union, not a, you know, we know even the founders didn't think we could have a perfect union, but I, th- I think there's real progress to make. I think he's going to try. I hope he makes it. Yeah. Well, listen, yeah, I do believe in rooting for the president of the United States. You may not love his agenda, but we got to we got to root for our president because we're Americans and uh, I'll be rooting for him. Same as I, I rooted for Trump to do well and do well on behalf of the country. And, you know, whatever you think of the policy, America, America first and all it brought that that is a principle, sort of like Black Lives Matter, just as a principle we can get behind. And I hope Trump remembers it over the next month. And I hope Biden remembers it in, when dealing with his with the squad and others who are trying to pull him leftward. James, this reminds me of our debates on Fox. I always loved them, and I loved today's as well. Thanks for being here. You bet. I appreciate it. James Carville. That's why they call him the Raging Cajun. You know, he's from Louisiana, and he's spicy, and that's what we love about him. So it was great talking to him. It was great talking to Chris Christie as well. Uh, super fun reconnecting with both of them. Uh, I want to tell you something quickly about Super Beats Soft Shoes, because listen, Friend to friend here. If you haven't tried them, you're missing out. I love these things. Superbeat soft shoes make me feel more energized without the like jittery jittery feeling of coffee. Plus, they really taste great. More than that, they are packaged so conveniently you can just throw them in your bag before you head to work so you got them on the way or while you're at your place of business. Superbeat soft shoes combine non GMO beets with a powerful new ingredient, grapeseed extract. The grapeseed extract used in Superbeats chews has been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. That's good. You can take just two of these things anytime, anywhere, two a day, to get the blood pressure support you need. So do what I did and support your heart health with delicious Super Beats Chews. Get your Super Beats Chews today at getsuperbeats.com MK. And when you buy two bags, which why wouldn't you, they will throw in the third for free. How do you like them apples? How do you like them beets? That's getsuperbeats.com slash MK. And you're welcome because you're going to love them. Now we want to bring to you a feature that we call Asked and Answered here on the show where you guys write in a question. And if I'm able, I'll give you an answer. And for this, we bring in our executive producer, Steve Krakauer with the question, the man with the questions. What's up, Steve? (laughs) And Megan, we've been getting lots of great questions. They are being sent to us at questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. Send them in. We'll uh, we'll get them answered. This one comes from Emily Tift, who says she's a huge fan of yours and truly believes what she hears when she listens to the show, which is great. But she wants to know, how can we know who and what to believe and who to trust when we get our news? She wants a recommendation of a few others who you can go to and get unbiased facts. Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for that. Uh, that's a good question. And and maybe it will soon change. I'm not sure uh, because it looks like we're going to have a Biden administration soon. But I will tell you for now and for the past four years, I have chosen to trust disaffected Republicans. In other words, Republicans who are not never Trumpers, but who aren't totally on board with, with Trump, because these are guys who are not biased against Republicans, but are not Trump sycophants. So they can see him. They're they're kind of rooting for him, you know, like they're open minded to his successes, but they're not robotic in their love for Trump. And so they can report on him fairly. And and for that, 
I love National Review. I I love those guys, Rich Lowry, Charles C.W. Cook, who we put on this program. Um, I like their podcast called The Editors, and I just love their website. You can you can sort of search around for for the folks who you trust. Uh, I also, as I've mentioned before, I go to RealClearPolitics.com every morning, and you can see editorials from the left and the right. And from if you read both sides of an issue, the truth will emerge. And that for me has always been super helpful under any administration. So that's where I'd start if I were you. You know, to my apartment, I get the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. That's just too laborious to go through two full papers every morning, try to compare and contrast for facts. And the the journal's very business oriented, which is not really what I'm looking for. And the Times is so far left that both are proving to be less and less useful, though I do love that New York Times crossword, but only on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday. And then it just gets humiliating. Anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, but it's a good question, Emily, especially in today's day and age. On that note, I want to tell you that today's episode was brought to you in part by Norton 360 with LifeLock. Protect yourself from cybercrime with the top trusted ally in today's connected world. Go to Norton.com slash MK to learn more. Thank you all so much for listening. In the meantime, if you got a minute, go over, subscribe to the show, download the show, Rate the show five stars, if you please, and drop me a review. I love connecting. I read them all. I do. And I, we've gotten actually quite a few good guest ideas in there. And, uh, you know, people give me lots of performance tips. <laughs> it's, it's actually really fun <laughs> to get the feedback. So anyway, you got to subscribe uh, to make it happen and download, rate, and review. So thank you for doing that and have a great weekend. We'll see you Monday. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.